Good afternoon. It's Friday the 22nd of October 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, well, first of all, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, we're going to do things slightly differently today because Patrick will be with us for the first half or so of the programme. And then I'm delighted to say that uh, Alex Thompson is back in Plymouth, so he will be joining us uh, for the second half. Um, so uh, we'll keep you posted on, on that as we go. Lots to get through. Uh, today. We'll start off with this because this is a claim across all the mainstream press this morning. 50,000 cases uh, per day, first time in three months is the claim. Uh, and uh, well, this is the government uh, coronavirus dashboard that we see on screen. And you can see uh, how it's uh, climbing up uh, ready for winter lockdown. Patrick, uh, it's quite incredible how the uh, statistics seem to just fit where the political narrative is going at any moment in time. Um, but of course, this is uh, PCR tests lateral flow tests, absolutely everything in there. But don't worry, you can rest assured that if, if you uh, take multiple tests and you have multiple positive results, it's only counted once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, this was the Times. Javid warns, uh, the, was this this morning or yesterday? Yesterday's Times. Javid warns daily COVID cases could hit 100,000. Well, of course, if you have uh, a, a testing regime which supports that, it absolutely could hit 100,000. It doesn't mean that uh, there are actually 100,000 cases per day. But the main point is here that they're putting an emphasis again on cases, and then they're pushing out these uh, extravagant estimations of what it could be highly likely to be 100. So this is like the Chuckle Brothers. This is what Witty and Valance were doing uh, just about a year ago, right? Right. Right before winter. Yes. So amping up the public fear, the hysteria, and then, of course, all the public health agencies and all the administrators, local governments, everybody follows suit, gets into the panic mode, and then they've absolutely primed the ground for lockdowns. Um, but it doesn't end there because uh, deaths as well. So here's the mail this morning. COVID was the third leading cause of death in England in September, and only heart disease and dementia killed more official data shows. So this is more Office for National Statistics data. Um, and uh, But what were they actually saying? Well, the, the Office for National Statistics was saying that the number of deaths from all causes in the UK in the week ending uh, the 8th of October 2021 was 12,490, which is 14.7% above the average for the corresponding week, 2015 to 2019. But let's have a look at the, the graph that the, uh, the graphic that the mail has produced from the ONS data, uh, showing the claim that COVID-19 is the third uh, most significant cause of death in the country. Uh, let's just put that in a little bit of perspective, um, because this is, this is the ONS uh, statistics from the beginning of the year up until the 8th of October. And you can see there very clearly um, the proportion of all-cause mortality, which is being attributed to COVID-19. I'm not saying that those uh, dark blue boxes represent COVID-19 deaths. I'm saying that those are deaths that have been attributed to COVID-19 by the ONS. Um, and uh, again, we re reiterate that that's on the basis of the testing regime. But even look at the label in the top upper left-hand corner, Mike, deaths involving yes. COVID-19. So even that's the ONS, right? Yeah, it's the ONS. So they put in that caveat because they're, they're being careful about the claims that they're making as well. Of course, the media and government don't, they'll take that as a straight up COVID death, right? That's right. So, so what, what are they saying? Uh, they're saying that uh, the number of deaths from all causes, as I said a second ago, in the UK uh, for the week ending 8th of October there uh, was 12,490, and that's 14.7% above the average of the corresponding week. All the rhetoric from the mainstream press about how, about how we need to be fearful this winter uh, of the, the coming rise of COVID once again uh, fails to ask the question, why 
uh, a significant proportion of that, 14% above the average, is for non-COVID reasons, attribution of. Uh, so they go on to say, of all deaths registered in the week up to 8th of October, uh, 820 involved the coronavirus, 154 fewer than the previous week. Deaths involving COVID-19 accounted for around 1 in 15 deaths, 6.6%. Now, since uh, the ONS by default puts COVID deaths in the uh, above average uh, category, um, then if uh, there were 14.7% more deaths uh, in that week relative to the five-year average, uh, then 6.6% of, of those were attributed to COVID. That means that more than 50% of the excess mortality was non-COVID related. So I wonder what could be causing that. But in the meantime, uh, let's uh, just go head over to the United States, Patrick. I just wanted to comment yes, on that on yes. the previ previous uh, story, Mike. It's also important to note that uh, even though uh, the, uh, the, the deaths that are attributed to COVID-19 are often attributed because of a PCR test taken within a certain amount of time of the person dying, okay? So the, the whether it's with COVID or without COVID, uh, even the, the, the deaths without COVID, um, you're, you're, you've got a whole range of comorbidities as well. So this all comes down to PCR testing. Yes. And so the, the numbers are completely uh, distorted on, on a good day, okay? Yeah. So the, the longer that we keep with this facade, this uh, PCR testing facade, that it's somehow a diagnostic test that somehow represents an actual medical case, the more distortion we're going to have in, right across all of these data sets. And this methodology needs to be audited by somebody or somebody needs to take responsibility for this. Otherwise, this crisis will never end. It's never, no, it's it correct. It will never end if we keep doing this. So although we're showing you official data on screen from the ONS, and yes, we're commenting on it, we have to look below the surface to the meta level of that data. It is completely distorted because what's feeding that data is effectively the fraudulent use of non-diagnostic tests, PCR, and lateral flow. Right. Completely agree. Okay, so let's move over to the United States. Washington Post, a couple died of COVID, leaving five children behind. A relative says people called their deaths fake news. So th this is a typical story that we're seeing a lot of now. And in America, they're really pushing this hard in the winter. I'm sure you're going to get these if you haven't already right across the UK press. I don't look in all the tabloids every day. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know who does. But this is from the Washington Post. So this is total demagoguery here. This couple supposedly leaving five children behind. And it's so irresponsible of them, Mike, because guess what? They were unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. Why? Because apparently relatives say uh, that they were looking at stuff online that convinced them that vaccines uh, don't work or that COVID doesn't exist. So Kevin and Misty, 48, 46, uh, were not vaccinated against coronavirus, okay? And so he, uh, the, I believe we're talking about the father here told Stafford County couple they had regular taken online misinformation about the virus and vaccines. He liked to listen to different mems he would see or different people saying COVID is not real. So they're jumping on, uh, this is a bit of gaslighting. They're taking the most extreme anecdotal story apparently from one of the relatives here uh, and then they're blowing that up. So COVID is not real and they're focusing on this just to show that these people are painting them as crackpots. Mm -hmm. So they're using their death as demagoguery, Mike. 
and they're using it to kind of browbeat the public into taking vaccines. And at the same time, they're shaming them. Mm. They're trying to humiliate them uh, after, after they've died. So this is just kind of really repulsive mainstream media coverage. But let's break this down. This is how it works. So the Mitchums were among numerous COVID-19 patients who have expressed regret about their vaccine hesitation shortly before dying. So apparently there was a deathbed confession. And this is a narrative which is which has been running through the mainstream press for a few weeks now. It's, it's one that they clearly are intending to develop further. Yeah, yeah. So family members have blamed, here we go, misinformation for their loved one's deaths. So is that true or not? Does the media care? No, they're trying to get this idea across to get people to shame other family members for uh, not falling into line with the sort of corporate diktats of the main vaccine narrative here, which is effectively a pharmaceutical product, which is still in clinical trials, by the way. But let's continue. Social media platforms have struggled to control the flow of misinformation. There's that word again. I don't know how many times they used it in this article, quite a few, uh, which has ranged from promotion of unproven therapies. They're talking about ivermectin, the evil ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, to questioning vaccine safety and coronaviruses existence here. So let's just look a little bit closer though. So here is uh, the wife, Misty. So two days after arriving at Fredericks Fredericksburg, Virginia's hospital with COVID-19, allegedly with COVID-19, she tested PCR positive. She might've had pneumonia. We don't know. Misty was put on a ventilator. And uh, we highlighted that, obviously, the emphasis. Well, and rightly so, because if you remember back to the beginning, Patrick, uh, this was the default position, get everybody on ventilators. And uh, looking back on it now, many commentators have said that this contributed to deaths, um, the f not, not any COVID-19 infection itself or illness itself, but the fact that people were just automatically put on ventilators. So like when you're looking at a story like this, and I think what, what were her other comorbidities? The Washington Post will not mention that because that doesn't fit the narrative. So I did a search with the local news and of course, NBC local, Misty had diabetes. So she died two days after being put on a ventilator. She was intubated and put into an induced chemical induced coma. Mm. That's how you are ventilated. Right. Should she have been on a ventilator? That's debatable because a lot of doctors, as we'll show you shortly, have totally abandoned this because it was such an epic failure at the beginning of the so-called pandemic in the spring of 2020. So let's just carry on. So that's Misty. So she has diabetes. She is heavily overweight. Uh, she's probably got a number of other comorbidities as well, which are not listed here that go along with those other conditions. And to top that off, Mike, she was put on a ventilator. But we're meant to be told that the thing that killed her is misinformation mm. on, on the internet. So that's where the press is trying to bring the public. So let's go a little closer here. Uh, now, as far as the husband goes, uh, Don Mitchum was the father of the husband, uh, raced to the hospital for the last conversation before his son Kevin was put on a ventilator. Now that again was not in the Washington Post, it was through an NBC local affiliate, I found that information. So he was also put on a ventilator, allegedly had no comorbidities, put on a vent, dies almost immediately. So uh, let's, let's carry on here. So what else? More demagoguery. Uh, these are various stories here, California man, Illinois woman, and here is uh, Sean Kuhn. This was a 
uh, 21-year-old, pardon me, university student at University of Georgia, fitness freak, uh, totally fine apparently, and supposedly after a six-week battle of COVID pneumonia. So this, I've never seen this term before. No, this is new, new on me, yeah. COVID pneumonia. So basically he had pneumonia and tested positive for COVID along the way. Uh, and so guess what? Lo and behold, we dig a little further, uh, not on here, but on another site, the COVID blog. And we find out that Sean was in intensive care unit in a medically induced coma on a ventilator. Note that once ventilators, it, the ventilators utilized, the chances of survival decreases significantly. That's a fact as well. And we just have to go uh, to WebMD uh, here and ventilators are helping patients or harming patients. So according to these doctors here, this is one of the top pulmonologists here, many who go on a ventilator die, okay? And those who survive likely will face ongoing breathing problems caused by either the machine or damage to the virus. The longer people are on ventilation, the more likely they are to suffer complications related to machine-assisted breathing. So, I mean, this is just one of many different uh, things that we've picked up there. And so here, this is what the doctor is saying here. This is uh, Udit Chada, uh, pulmonologist, Mount Sinai Hospital, one of the top hospitals there in New York. And there had been a tendency early on in this crisis for people to put patients on ventilators early because patients were deteriorating quickly. That is something that most of us have stepped away from doing. Apparently not, Mike. Mm. Uh, he says, as a top doctor, he's saying most of us have stopped doing that, but apparently it's still going on all over the country. And so again, we will argue that uh, a lot of this excess mortality, a lot of these COVID deaths are a direct result of these policies like uh, ventilation. Mm. Certainly in New York and where the main hotspots, as, as they call it, for COVID-19, that's what was driving the statistics early on, New Jersey, uh, New York, and, uh, and some of these other areas as well, and right. probably in Britain too. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we've got to get ready for the winter because 50,000 cases already. We're heading towards 100,000 cases per day. It's a very serious situation. Uh, so get your jabs uh, because it's not uh, it's not one vaccine. It's not a booster that we need, Patrick. It's two at least because you got to get your booster, and you got to get your uh, your your flu jab. And of course, this is all about protecting your loved ones. So this narrative that they built over the last eighteen months, they're really doubling down on it uh, for this winter. Um, so let's have a look at what Sajid Javid uh, had to say. Our vaccine program is building a wall of defense across the country, and our booster. Rollout is now well underway with more than 4 million jabs in arms. Uh, that's fantastic. So as we go into the winter, it's vital that eligible people get their booster jab and their, and their flu jab to protect themselves, their loved ones, and the NHS. Uh, this is a national mission, and I'm hugely grateful to the public volunteers and NHS workers rolling out the jabs. Um, so, well, the question is, who did they roll out then? Uh, do you think, Patrick, to uh, comment on this? Uh, I'm going to give a health warning at this point. People may uh, suffer some kind of adverse reaction. An adverse reaction to something called TB. To TB uh, in just one second. Let's have a look, uh, listen to what TB had to say. It's the evidence that vaccination works is literally, okay, it's overwhelming. I mean, there's just, there's no doubt about it at all. And by the way, Pfizer and AstraZeneca are both excellent vaccines as is Moderna and other vaccines. So you've got, you've got a situation where once you, if you really take this out to people and say to them, look, just look at the data, 
It's clear. You know, vaccination works. The absence of vaccination, your failure to get vaccinated doesn't just put you at risk. I think this is what is important. In a way, if this were just a personal decision for people and you get vaccinated, you don't get vaccinated, it's you who suffers if you don't. But it's not you who suffers if you don't, simply. It's also other people. And there are people who are unvaccinated. They come into contact with people, even those who are vaccinated now, they can still transmit the disease. And if those people have got a serious underlying condition, they can actually die as a result of that. So I think, you know, I understand people's objections, but at some point you've got to say to people, look, the evidence, not just from Britain, but around the world is crystal clear. There's, not, there's, there's no serious person disputing it. And to get vaccinated is, is actually part of your, it's, it's almost part of your civic duty. So it's your civic duty to get vaccinated because, Patrick, because the vaccine protects you except where it doesn't protect you. And therefore, if you're unvaccinated and you've made a personal choice to put your own life at risk, you're actually putting the lives of the vaccinated at risk as well. Does this make sense? Because the vaccine's supposed to work, right? Right. Exactly. So he did contradict himself totally uh, during that uh, little diatribe there. All, it's all science, though. It's all science. It, it is. Um, so uh, let's have a look at some commentary on this, uh, on, on this whole thing with uh, rolling out Tony Blair and so on. So this is uh, Aaron, uh, I can't uh, quite... Kerlati. Kerlati, okay. He's, a, he's a, uh, a, an MD, but he's also a professor at one of the universities in the United States. Uh, the largest population-based study comparing unvaccinated slash naturally immune to the vaccinated found that vaccinated people were six to 13 times more likely to get infected, 27 more times more likely to get uh, symptomatic infections, and eight times more likely to be hospitalized. Uh, these findings are not surprising since infection with the virus uh, allows our body uh, to form an immune response to many parts of the virus, uh, whereas the vaccine exposes to only one part, the spike protein. Uh, data from Qatar found that only 0.02% of COVID-recovered individuals experienced reinfection uh, with no, uh, with no uh, waning over time uh, and with reinfections less severe in, than initial infections. And then data for the UK says during the Delta, like, like, sorry, likewise found a 0.25% of reinfection rate in COVID-recovered people uh, compared to 23% breakthrough infection rate in vaccinated people. Uh, over the same period. Uh, and thanks to Ian Davis for this, but a couple of uh, uh, scientific papers to have a look at. Uh, this one from uh, uh, Tel Aviv University, uh, comparing SARS-CoV-2 natural immunity to vaccine-induced immunity and uh, clearly showing that uh, natural immunity is better. Uh, this one from uh, Cornell University, uh, SARS-CoV-2 antibody positivity projects, uh, protects against reinfection for at least seven months with 95% efficacy. Uh, and then, Patrick, here's one from 21st Century Wire, but I believe this uh, paper that you're talking about here is from Washington University School of Medicine at St. Louis. Um, so this, what your headline here, academic study, mild COVID-19 induces lasting antibody prote protection in bone marrow for natural immunity support. Yeah, so surprise, surprise, natural immunity is better than synthetic corporate immunity. So to think that you have to subscribe to Pfizer pay your subscription or whatever, AstraZeneca, to get your immunity, immunity to work. That's the sort of canard that's been pushed uh, for the last uh, year or so, that natural immunity is no good uh, and that you need to queue up and pay your, uh, your little fee or the government will pay it for you. 
uh, in this case, they'll bail out the pharmaceutical companies by buying up all the doses. But synthetic immunity is the only thing that will save you in this world. It's very dangerous out there. Yes. And uh, it's, it's a war on microbes. As soon as you step out the door, you will be attacked by COVID or the flu or whatever. And so you need some synthetic immunity from your, your friends and the people that love you most. You know where they are. They're big pharma. Uh, indeed. And well, the question is, does the NHS love you most? Now, again, we can't necessarily blame the NHS or the people in the NHS for what's going on, because this, is, of course, is a result of uh, policy management decisions and so on. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to highlight this article from the uh, BBC this morning. NHS 111 failed Horsham team who died following delays. Uh, and so uh, what they're saying here is that uh, failings by NHS 111 contributed to the death of an autistic teenager, a coroner has ruled. Uh, Hannah Royal, 16, suffered a cardiac arrest as she was driven to hospital by her parents after a 111 algorithm failed to notice she was seriously ill. She, in fact, had a twist in her stomach, which uh, caused massive problems, massive stress on her body. Uh, and uh, it was causing her to vomit. It was causing her significant diarrhea. Uh, the parents phoned 111. Uh, they didn't get much uh, useful uh, information from them. As her condition worsened, they phoned again. And instead of calling an ambulance, the 111 service told her told them to drive her to hospital and she had the cardiac, cardiac arrest while she was in the car on the way. Um, but don't worry, because an NHS spokesperson said it would act on the findings of the coroner and, uh, and learnings where necessary, where necessary. Uh, so th there's basically a complete lack of acknowledgement uh, that the system is broken. Um, and of course, it's contributing to the excess mortality that we're seeing at the moment. But everything done by telephone, it's best just to do all of your health care by, by telephone. Isn't that what the 111 service was launched? This is do, exactly to, right, yes. To sort of you know, take pressure they, so that you could triage, right? Triage uh, all of those. Uh, and not, not have people turning up at accident and emergency uh, looking for healthcare. Sure, sure. Yeah, because yeah. at the end of the day, you can't trust people. So it's best to keep them on hold or keep them on the phone. Yes. And uh, just deal with them there. That's that's better. That is better. Right. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to Sir David Amos and uh, Ali Harby. Ali, Patrick. Sure. Well, I know you've uh, covered this uh, earlier. And uh, so the tragedy of uh, Tory MP Sir David Amos, who was stabbed to death at his surgery. Uh, this was the, the young man charged uh, with the murder, Ali Harby Ali here, a Somalian uh, origin and, you know, not, not from a, say, not uh, more of a well-to-do family yes. uh, with an interesting profile as well. But what's, what's more interesting is, I remember when we discussed this, when this happened, I said immediately, I said, I'll bet you that give it, give it a couple of days and he would have been on the security services uh, radar. Yes. And uh, that does seem to be like that's a very high probability in this case. And I want to point people to some of the media reporting here. And this is how uh, this story is being used right now. Uh, so twisted hate preacher. So they're, they're blaming the radicalization of uh, this young Somalian on, here we go, this is the son, Amgen Chowdhury. So this is the radical cleric uh, hate preacher who used to run sort of shotgun with Abu Hamza as the sort of face of terror in Britain. And so apparently the young man was hooked to the YouTube videos of uh, Amgen Chowdhury. Sorry, sorry, did you say YouTube videos? He says YouTube videos. Well, that's what uh, Rupert Murdoch's son is saying. 
Uh, so if 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 he's a, if Amjan Chowdhury, this this hate preacher that's radicalizing all of these terrorists one by one, every single one practically that's involved in any of these uh, high-profile events, uh, why are his videos all over YouTube for years? Okay, so because <laughs> it's a, it's the right kind of extremism. You say uh, there's no there's no restriction on the right kind of extremism. Sure, sure, and and you know f uh, quite a few people have accused uh, Amjan Chowdhury of being an intelligence asset including some mainstream journalists. So we haven't included all of that uh, in today's program. We'll go quite deep in a minute to show you what we have found, but that's uh, something to look for if you wanna do some research on Mr. Chowdhury, convicted terrorist, apparently so dangerous, he had to be excommunicated to another country. Uh, but yet, um, he's still radicalizing uh, all the young Muslim boys of, of Britain. It's just bizarre. So uh, was, was this young man, Ali Harvey Ali, caught in the prevent system, in the prevent strategy system? I know you discussed. Well, Brian gave a bit of a background on prevent uh, on, on Wednesday's program, I think. Yes. So, so it, it's difficult to say, but it, it, this isn't the first time that we faced these, these questions. Let's just uh, turn back the clock a little bit here and look at the origins uh, of, of prevent. And we'll take you back to 2008, 2009, and this was something called the Channel Project here. 200 school children in Britain, uh, the same uh, as young as 13, uh, have been identified as potential terrorists. Now think about how they were doing this back then. This was in the, when the war and terror was really hitting its peak. So you're identifying 200 school children. Uh, in this case, this would have been West Yorkshire uh, area. And so calling them potential terrorists mm. at the age of 13, I mean, really, but this is what the security services and the special branch and the police services were doing at the time. And they got funding for this project. And this would become Prevent. Right. This was called the Channel Project. So a police scheme to spot youngsters who are vulnerable to Islamic radicalization. So we might look back at this and say this is completely over the top. But back then, this passed for policy. You have to remember that. So in here, Sir Norman Bettison, he was chief constable of West Yorkshire Police said the Channel Project had intervened in the cases of at least 200 children who were thought to be at risk of extremism. And so that number leapt from 10 children identified in June 2008. Now I'm going to throw this question out to you. Do you think the jump from 10 to 200 children in one year was just because there was more radicalization going on in the world of, of junior high school students? Or do you think it had to do with the fact they were ramping up uh, this sort of uh, surveillance or this... You might say that there are parallels to be drawn with COVID and testing. Exactly, yeah. The, the, exactly, the more you're looking yeah. uh, and the more you're going to find. So yeah, it is a similar type of program, absolutely. And so just finally here, the program was run at the time by ACPO, the Association of Police Officers, uh, asking teachers, parents, and other community figures to be vigilant for signs that may indicate an attraction to extremist views or susceptibility of being groomed by radicalizers. Now, again, you can transpose this into the current COVID conversation about online harms mm -hmm. and online extremism. It's the same thing. So we have just shown you an example of the state uh, who is involved in creating, really creating uh, the problem or the crisis mm -hmm. of radicalization through their own programs using public money to create a crisis. And uh, this isn't the only time that we have seen something like this. So, and the most famous, now this, this later channel project would become Prevent. 
That was the kind of beta testing, the channel project. So here's Jihadi John, the most famous terrorist at one time in the world, did the videos with the hood on and everything from Syria. And we were meant to think that this was just some random event. And this was a British uh, Muslim that absconded to Syria. And he's making these videos and terrorizing the world, beheading people. Some of the videos were debunked as being filmed in studio. Mm -hmm. uh, we could get into that later. But just to say at the time, it was enough to get American Americans and Europeans all riled up and backing airstrikes and, and so forth. So the North London school where he attended, Amwazi, uh, Muhammad Amwazi, was called Quinton uh, Kinaston Academy in St. John's Wood. Also educated, funny enough, two other pupils in the same period as Amwazi who went on to become ISIS fighters. Funny how that works. And so this school, Quinton uh, uh, Kinaston School, had been extremely proactive in working with, here we go, the government's prevent strategy. Uh, for a period of time, and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. So the question then, Patrick, is, is prevent all about uh, preventing anything, or is it actually drawing people in? Is it identifying suitable mindsets, perhaps? And it, it goes beyond that, Mike. Uh, are they actually recruiting? Yeah. Uh, or are they attempting to recruit? Or are they using this to create, actually, their prevent making more radical hmm. uh, uh, youngsters as a result? Well, as it turns out, here, UK security services have been criticized in recent days for not stopping Nwazi fleeing to Syria. So he was on the radar of the security services. And then, the, so the way the press handles it is that, oh, they didn't do enough. They didn't do enough to stop him. But he was, of course, on the radar the whole time. How much on the radar? Well, this much on the radar. Nwazi uh, first contacted CAGE. CAGE was a campaign group for people who are a victim of this sort of thing, or who've been held in detention during the war on terror. In 2009, Mwazi complained about being interrogated by a British official at uh, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam after trying to visit Tanzania, apparently on holiday. He says they said, no, he's going to fight with al-Shabaab. Uh, and so this goes on. In one email, he described being interrogated in Amsterdam by an MI5 officer, identified himself as Nick, and he knew everything about me, where I lived, uh, what I did, the people I hang around with, said Mwazi. So if you're going to take this at face value, he relayed this to CAGE, uh, the, the human rights organization. And he says, this is, I'm really freaked out. Mm. I believe there's telephone recordings of this pro probably as well, but certainly emails. Uh, if he, uh, The emails are on record and this was reported about in the press. Mm. So this is more than just identifying. So he, he he's come through the prevent now he's being tailed. They have all the intelligence on him. They're cornering him at airports outside of the country. So would this make someone more radical or less radical as a result? Possibly more radical. Yeah. Uh, so let's just go on here. And uh, this reminds me of this. You remember the Woolwich mm -hmm. terror attack, the stabbing? Well, MI5 tried to recruit the Woolwich uh, terrorist stabber. The British security services sought to recruit the Woolwich murder suspect Michael uh, Adebayo, well, he was being held uh, by Kenyan authorities on suspicion of attempting to join Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab. So we see a pattern emerging here. And I remember not so long ago, you remember this uh, dramatic terrorist attempt stabbing on London Bridge here, security services under the uh, little bit of suspicion here. Uh, Usman Khan was the, was the, the, the assailant. Security services and police are to face questions 
over whether they missed the chance to stop a convicted terrorist uh, out on license with an electronic tag who stopped, stabbed two people uh, to death. So he was out of on some special prison release program uh, at a, an event with the uh, charity that was using, he was kind of a trophy uh, for this program to say, look, this is a reformed terrorist here. And uh, lo and behold, he runs outside and duct tapes, uh, gaffer tapes, some kitchen knives to his hand, stabbing people. And of course, he was shot dead. So that was the end of end of that. He won't be uh, talking. But, uh, you know, if, if we were to look at the various uh, Islamic terror events, uh, so-called, uh, over the last 20 years, how many of them have been perpetrated by people that were not known to the intelligence services? This is a question or haven't had some direct interaction with MI5 or MI6. Very few. Very few. And the same in the United States. Funny that uh, all of these, uh, a lot of mass shootings and uh, ter terrorist attacks or attempted terrorist attacks feature people uh, who were uh, on, not only on the FBI's radar, but were actually in contact with FBI informants or had handlers and so forth. Yes. And so this isn't just conspiracy theory talk. Trevor Aronson wrote a fantastic book on this very subject, uh, the majority of terror busts in America during this main period of time during the so-called war on terror mm -hmm. were featuring FBI informants and FBI operatives. And we've also reported on a number of these as well. So, but yet for the mainstream press, that doesn't mean anything at the time. As soon as an event happens, they report it on face value. They don't look underneath. And then a few years later, we might find out in some inquest or some inquiry, oh, yes, the intelligence service were involved in that. Yeah, but, but they didn't do enough to stop them. And that's just about as far as it goes. It was a cock-up, not a cover-up. So, so with, with the tragic death of uh, Sir uh, Mark Amos, David Amos, David Amos the uh, Tory uh, MP, uh, you have to ask these questions. Yes. How deep does it go? And will the press go that far? Or is this under national security letter? Don't want to go too far. Don't no. want to go too far. Yeah. No, indeed. Okay, let's move on to the COP26. It's going to be a highly successful event, isn't it, Patrick? It is. It's so successful that some of the big players are not going to show up. Uh, Putin and Xi, Xi Jinping there, back to back with Vladimir Putin, set to disengage as world leaders meet on climate. So they're not going to attend uh, the illustrious COP26 in Glasgow. I can't imagine why they... Xi would turn down a a free soiree in, in Glasgow. I don't know why he would do that, or Putin. But anyway, they're not coming. They're not going to the G20 either. And I think that's scheduled to happen in Rome. Mm. So nothing against Scotland. They're also uh, not showing up to Italy either. So uh, it seems like, well, according to officials uh, in Moscow and China, well, Xi has not done any international visits, I think, in-person visits since the beginning of the COVID crisis. And as far as Putin goes, very few, aside from maybe a little trip to Geneva or to Switzerland uh, yeah. for certain meetings. But so this is really two important countries that would have to be on board uh, with this type of agreement. Certainly China would be one of the biggest there uh, in the world, and they're not going to show up. Right. So, and, and climate is also going to feature heavily at the G20 as well. And again, they're not going to be there. So they will attend remotely or send a video statement or something like that. So it doesn't bode well, but it doesn't end there. I never thought I'd see the, le the level of skepticism uh, from the Washington Post. Uh, upcoming climate summit is supposed to save the planet, but pessimism is building. So the Build Back Better 
bill that Joe Biden is trying to ram through a multi-trillion dollar bill is getting watered down and pared down to the point where, A, it might not even pass. And if it does, the Democrats are even making concessions to have it maybe one quarter of the size of what it was uh, previously. So it, it, and they're finding that that plus the energy uh, crisis, the supply chain uh, crisis that we've commented before, all of these things are basically causing a lot more skepticism in the general public mm -hmm. about the whole uh, mad rush to sort of save the earth from climate change by deindustrializing the West and getting everybody off hydrocarbons and onto green energy. And a lot of things that have happened over the last 12 months have basically sent signals to the market, to people that, hey, this, this isn't practical mm -hmm. and this is gonna bankrupt us. And no, we don't wanna freeze our, to death uh, this, uh, this and every other winter uh, to placate the concerns of Greta Thunberg uh, that uh, there might be global warming in 200 years time that might raise the Earth's temperature another degree or half a degree and that that's gonna somehow kill humanity uh, in the sixth uh, extinction, as Extinction Rebellion uh, say. So. It's interesting. Yes. And can I just clarify something? You said uh, Biden's Build Back Better bill, and Biden is a uh, Democrat, which is equivalent to the Labour Party, roughly equivalent. And on the other hand, Boris is uh, uh, um, at the Tory party conference, was, uh, his slogan was Build Back Better. So um, these don't seem to be compatible, Biden being a Democrat and Boris being a Conservative. No. So, so there must be something else going on there, some kind of overarching policy that we're seeing it being enacted. Yeah, and it's the same in Canada, and it's the same in other European countries as well. So clearly they're getting their marching orders from uh, a higher power, and uh, that could, could be a, an 80-something-year-old man uh, in Davos, Davos Switzerland, yes. uh, by the name of Herr Schwab. Yeah. So, but uh, lastly, we'll just point this out. This is uh, potentially a big story here. Uh, well, we'll see. Adam Schiff has asked the intelligence agencies to hand over information. He's the congressman, uh, Democratic congressman who led the impeachment trials about the CIA's targeting of WikiLeaks and specifically Julian Assange. And so what he's alluding to is, and notice the author of this story, Mike Isakoff. He is one of the people who kind of launched the Steele dossier, as it were, or at least referred to it. Uh, to kind of start, in, injected it into the conversation at the beginning of the whole Russiagate uh, conspiracy that ended up collapsing here. And this, is, this was the original story here that's piqued Adam Schiff's interest. Kidnapping, assassination, a London shootout inside the CIA's secret war against WikiLeaks. So uh, it's fingering Mike Pompeo specifically as the guy who, you know, while he was his first year, I guess, is... Uh, CIA director wanted Assange so badly because of the Vault 7 leaks uh, sh uh, exposing the CIA's hacking tools uh, that he spoke about as possibly assassinating him. So uh, anonymous Trump security officials have provided Michael Isakoff and the Yahoo News with this uh, supposed revelation about Pompeo wanting to assassinate Julian Assange. But of course, there's nothing written down. There's no records. Mm. It's more or less hearsay. It could have happened. It could have happened, but it will never be proved in the court of law. Uh, certainly, this would be an illegal leak already, uh, so maybe it's not true. I'm, I'm going to guess that it's not. I'm going to guess that this is because Mike Pompeo is being positioned uh, as a presidential candidate in 2024, and then there'll be a number of candidates who would probably run in a field, uh, I would imagine, and then if Tr Donald Trump is the nominee, 
Mike Pompeo having had his uh, credibility and his profile raised through the, through the, through the campaign and all the debates, uh, would then slot in as vice president for, Mike Trump, uh, for Donald Trump. And then if Ron DeSantis from Florida, who is also going to run uh, probably in 2024, right. uh, he, would, he would be uh, possibly Trump's first pick uh, for vice president. But if anything happens to DeSantis or Trump, uh, Mike Pompeo would be probably the presumed vice president for both a DeSantis presidency uh, and a Trump presidency, depending on who gets the nomination. Trump might not, something could happen to Trump, whatever. But so Pompeo has lost the weight. He's got blonde hair now. Uh, he's doing a lot of television uh, uh, appearances. So I think he's being groomed for that role as the kind of control guy. Uh, in the vice, the Dick Cheney, as it were, right. uh, for this next uh, Republican administration, should they be successful? So the Democrats know this, and they're dangling this story. So this looks like it's come out of the same cauldron as RussiaGate, uh, uh -huh. basically. So if you want to know more background on this, uh, just go to Twenty First Century Wire, and uh, I did a report, a uh, short report here with uh, RT International uh, yesterday, where I sort of go into details and explain um, why why this is. So. Keep an eye on that. Okay, and then uh, last segment, Patrick, before you leave us, uh, Facebook planted Francis Ho Hogan uh, as its own pretend whistleblower. Well, this is PolitiFact here. They're fact-checking this uh, conspiracy theory that's going around the internet that she's a fake whistleblower, and she's got a lot of uh, publicity, Mike. She's been on all the major media outlets. She's testified at Washington, and so their verdict is no, there's no evidence that whistleblower Francis Haugen was planted by Facebook, mm. none that they can find uh, anyway. So, and this is all about a viral image circulating on social media, uh, blamelessly claimed, or baselessly claimed that former Facebook employee Francis Haugen uh, is somehow some kind of fake uh, whistleblower here. So, and apparently this is what they're upset about. The post sharing the images received 25,000 interactions on Facebook. Uh, and Instagram, according to data from CrowdTangle, a social media insights tool. That's like nothing in terms of media impressions. Indeed. It's really nothing. I mean, anybody could put a mem on. So this is, the, the mem is in the background here. So imagine planting your own whistleblower uh, to expose yourself for not censoring enough so you can censor more. And so Politi PolitiFact found no evidence that this mem, uh, uh, that Facebook uh, planted um, this whistleblower into the uh, public discourse here. And apparently Facebook said it's not true. Oh, so because Facebook said it's not true, then that, that becomes the fact. So what they did, they used a mem that was, was doing the rounds online. They did a whole fact check around it. And then they called Facebook and they said, is this a fake whistleblower? Of course, Facebook said no. Uh -huh. And so, but if you want to get more background on this, go here to Glenn Greenwald's Substack. Democrats and media do not want to weaken Facebook just commandeer its power and censor. And uh, his Glenn's on Twitter. The Facebook quote whistleblower Frances Haugen is a vital media and political asset because she advances their quest for greater control over online political discourse. Their aim is not to erode Facebook and Google's vast power, but to transfer it to themselves for their own use. Yes. So everything that she said in her revelations is basically calling for more regulation to, 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 to save people and protect children from online harms. This is the whole point of what this whistleblower was 
was given a massive platform. Uh, and indeed, the uh, whistleblower that was speaking to the uh, uh, online safety bill committee on Monday that we highlighted on Monday's programme or on Wednesday's programme, uh, Sophie Shang, I think it was, uh, is saying exactly the same thing. She's there criticising Facebook for not doing enough. The algorithms don't work uh, and so on. Uh, and of course, she's there to try to persuade the uh, online harms committee, uh, the online safety bill committee to make sure that the bill is absolutely demanding that uh, the social media companies, uh, uh, because they want to censor the content, they want to be given free reign to censor the content, uh, but they want to have the excuse of a, le a legislative underpinning that justifies them censoring and continue to censor. Or putting pressure on corporations to make them censor on behalf of, of the government. What are the odds that, that that would happen both in the UK and the United States at the exact same time Two dubious whistleblowers yes. appearing, uh, and so, so again, look at that politifact fact check. It's yeah. gaslighting because it's not Facebook who would be planting the whistleblower, is it? Who would be planting a whistleblower into a corporation as an employee? Yes, it would probably be the intelligence services. Yes, because that, and if you look at the historical record of the CIA, just the CIA, you look at, uh, you read any of uh, uh, AG's work or. or or Marx or any of these guys, they basically chapter and verse every single company. They would put people in yeah. management positions, even in, even as high as the CEO positions, yeah. or create whole companies themselves. Some people argue this is, that this is what some of these big techs are, creations of the intelligence service, at least given C capital by them. But so it's more likely that they were planted in there by some government agency yeah. and not Facebook putting them out into the public as a whistleblower. Yes. So that's to me more a more likely explanation. Yeah. So I'm waiting for the mainstream press to jump all over that possibility. Will we be holding our breath for a while? For a very long time, mm -hmm. yes. Okay, well look, thank you very much, Patrick. Now we're gonna take a short break. So while we're doing that, we're gonna show the uh, the, the usual ad for uh, inviting you to join our community. Uh, and Patrick will now swap over with, uh, with Alex Thompson. So we will be back in uh, just one second. Okay, we're back and I'm joined by Alex Thompson. Welcome to the program, Alex. As if by magic, As Mike. if by magic. And uh, during the uh, first part of the program, I was actually hulking 12 large boxes of hoodies which have arrived for our viewers. Well, fantastic, good stuff. That's uh, the next batch in. Now, uh, let, we're talking about online harms just before the break, uh, in a sense, because we're talking about a Facebook whistleblower, Alex. Um, and uh, Keir Starmer, of course, was making uh, comments about online harms recently and particularly wanting to focus on one particular application. Let's have a listen to this. Telegram has been described as the app of choice for extremists. Uh, and Mr. Speaker, if you can believe it, if the House can believe it, as we were paying tribute to Sir David on Monday, Telegram users could access videos of murders and violent threats against politicians, the LGBT community, women and Jews, as we were paying our respects. Some of these posts are illegal, all of them are harmful, and hope not hate and the Board of Deputies have said that Telegram has, in their words, facilitated and nurtured a subculture that cheerleads for terrorists. 
Tough sanctions are clearly needed. Okay, so the attack is on Telegram. And so what's this all about, Alex? Well, of course, uh, if you look on the front page of the UK Column website at the moment, you'll see an article by Ian Davis talking about this building over a period of months, a narrative to, to suggest that uh, people that are uh, anti-lockdown or anti-vaccination uh, are being radicalized. This is something that Mariana Spring from the BBC is uh, pushing extremely hard, uh, that they're being radicalized, uh, that people are be becoming more violent and so on. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, Mariana Spring has been very clear that uh, over the last year or two, or year or so, uh, most, of the most of the campaigning, most of the uh, uh, protest marches and so on have been organized on Telegram. So Telegram has been singled out for particular uh, interests. Telegram. By Keir Starmer, sorry. Uh, and uh, well, here we've got RT. UK must crack down on apps promoting extremism, Labour leader Keir Starmer says. Uh, and the quote here is, in December 2016, it announced that the app was routinely moving, uh, removing up to 70 Islamic State channels per month in a joint operation conducted in late 2019 with Europol. The platform said it had purged 43,000 terror-related user accounts. But uh, as we show, as Patrick showed earlier on in the program, this is this is not the way it works uh, because Islamic extremism uh, seems to be quite comfortable on YouTube as it stands. Uh, it's uh, any critical um, criticism of government which is being viewed by government as extremism. That's the type of extremism that we need to get off social media. And there's not much talk here of the rampant child pornography on Facebook and YouTube, is there? Which uh, campaigners every week of the year manage to find more examples of. That, uh, that isn't being talked about in the House of Commons. Well, it is being used as a, as a driver for online safety bill, and uh, that, which brings us nicely onto the online safety bill because uh, another hearing has been held uh, yesterday. Um, and it's, this time it's all about protecting the legacy media. So um, this is the Select Committee, the Online Safety Bill Select Committee, uh, and it's headed up, uh, uh, well, you can see them on screen there at the moment, but uh, yesterday they had uh, this gentleman, Peter Wright, who's the editor emeritus at DMG Media, that's the organization that holds, uh, uh, that owns the Daily Mail. Um, and he's saying this, my reading of the bill uh, is that we're protected in the first case. This is journalism is protected in the first case by the fact that the duty of care does not apply to our content. So what he's saying there is that uh, the social media companies would not be required to take uh, journalist con journalistic content down uh, because it's, uh, the duty of care does not apply uh -huh. to that content. This right? is if you're named on the list of the official journalists. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, both on our own websites, but also when it's distributed on search and social media. So there's no obligation on the platforms to censor our content, uh, so they get special status. However, the problem comes because there's also no compulsion on them not to. Um, so there, that's what uh, the mainstream journalism uh, is concerned about, that there's no compulsion on social media companies not to. There is, uh, or there are clauses in the, social, in the uh, online safety bill which certainly would uh, make it difficult, if not impossible, for the social media companies to, to uh, do that. But anyway, he goes on to say, and the, journalist, sorry, and the journalistic protections specifically apply to news publisher content. Uh, so we have to look at the journalistic protections and ask how effective they are. And in my view, they're not effective. Uh, he said, uh, Facebook is blocking before people have had an opportunity to read content. 
uh, and there's and they also outsource their decision to fact checkers. So this is a particularly interesting comment, mm -hmm. uh, of which there are large numbers, and some of which appear to be single issue lobby groups right. under another mm -hmm. guise. Right is certainly right about that. Uh, take the most censorious European jurisdiction, Germany. Germany or, or Facebook Germany outsources its uh, fact checking and uh, hate speech nixing to a couple of people who are outfits that are well known to be, you could call them cultural Marxist campaign groups, basically. And again, while we're on violence and, and, and extremism on, on uh, Facebook, Twitter, etc., the, uh, the approved social media uh, outlets, there's uh, plenty of glorification of violence, to use that phrase that they like now, um, of going to you know, crack conservative members of, poli par uh, of Parliament's heads open. That doesn't seem to be talked about in Parliament either, does it? Right. So uh, let's uh, go on. So I'm hugely sceptical about this, and my view the exemption needs to be made a positive exemption. So the duty of care obliges platforms not to moderate journalistic content when it's produced by recognized mm. news publishers. Yes. And, and this is the key. Um, so, uh, so there we are. The online safety bill uh, continues to get scrutiny from the online safety bill select committee. Uh, and uh, we can expect that legislation to actually go into parliament in the not too distant future. Uh, now let's uh, move on to this, Alex. Uh, and uh, what is uh, Wobbly Bobbly saying? Wobbly Bobbly uh, could do with a lot more subscribers for making such sensible comments. I'm taking it at face value as somebody who legitimately has just discovered our output, one of the growing number of uh, British viewers who are finding us. And he says, today, seeking a better source of unbiased news, I stumbled on ukcolumn.org. After reading several of their current articles, so yes, there are people who read the articles and don't just wait for the news, so kudos for that. I am more convinced than ever that the greatest threat to UK democracy comes from career politicians and their sponsors. I thought this book ended very nicely. Our recurrent, uh, well, you could call it a campaign. The, the, the mainstream press talk about campaigns too, about the hazards of party, uh, parliamentary party systems and yeah. what they do to, un, uh, to, uh, to uh, undo and thwart the will of the voter. So I'm calling him rather than an MP here a PR. I guess you know what that stands for. Kevin Hollenrake PR, that's party representative. In this case, he's a representative of the Conservative Party to the people of Thurston and Moulton in North Yorkshire. And this is his response to one of our viewers asking him how it was possible that he was going to vote, as he told that constituent he was, uh, in favour of the prolonging of the uh, coronavirus uh, emergency measures for six months, as you covered earlier in the week. Yes. Hollenrake wasn't in the chamber that night. It's easy to tell that it's such a thin house, but you can also check from the, check from the division, that is the formal voting lists. He wasn't there. And he replied to his constituent that he had managed to vote without being present, even though there wasn't a division or a formal vote. And he said, this is how he did it. Since the legislation commanded strong support in the House, there was no division, i.e. it was a foregone conclusion. So he got the freedom to say, I voted for it, even though he wasn't there. Instead, says Mr. Hollingrake, Hollingrake the, the legislation was nodded through. That is his own word in an email that's been sent to me. We tend to use that as a cynical term, but he is actually saying the House nodded through this legislation, in other words, slept on the job, which has always been common practice. Well, thank you for your honesty in that respect, Mr. Hollenrake. Let's go back four decades to a gentleman who actually passed away 21 years ago now, uh, quite a well-known backbencher, that is a member of the governing party in the House of Commons who isn't in a, uh, in a ministerial position, so supposedly free to speak his mind. In an interview with the Reader's Digest, which is the, uh, one of the journals of choice in Middle England, uh, at least that generation, uh, in 1980, he says that as long as we backbenchers vote the way we are told, or have no vote because we're told not to, no one cares much what happens during the debate. Yes. So there we see something of the hazards and perils of 
party whipped democracy, which is the theme of our uh, Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. Now, uh, a viewer has uh, written to David Davis as a result of the woes he recently had, as you recently covered, Mike, uh, with the taking down by YouTube for a while of a speech he gave to a fringe meeting of his party um, co conference. And uh, the, the, the uh, viewer writes, Dear Mr. Davis, as you rightly say, a lesser known individual might have had the trouble reversing YouTube ban. You clearly have a strong libertarian record, fair comment regarding David Davis there. And I noticed that you not only mentioned free speech, but freedom of action. Free speech is useless if you are not allowed to act upon your preference, yes or no. He goes on. So I wonder why a libertarian of your caliber consents to and aids and abets the evil mechanisms of the party system in that you belong to the conservative party, given that the whole party system is, quote, the revolution against our constitution. By this, I mean that the party system negates constitutional law and deliberately centralizes power contrary to law. When we come to power, say you party politicians, the viewer adds, I note with interest that you are a member of 21 SAS, that's the reserve regiment for the special uh, forces in Britain. As well as taking an oath to the Queen in that respect, you will also have taken an oath as a member of Parliament. These oaths are meaningless. And I think the, the viewer who wrote this would add that the Queen's oath at the coronation itself is meaningless in these circumstances. I say this, explains the viewer, because you party politicians have removed the sovereign's executive role as expressed in the coronation oath 1688, when the sovereign declares to govern according to our respective, that's the different territories under her jurisdiction, our respective laws and customs. And you, that's the part of party, party politicians in Westminster, claim sovereignty yourselves because you are supposedly elected by the people, whereas the sovereign is supposedly not, which of course is wrong because uh, a claim is uh, by the people is part of the election of each sovereign. Uh, the viewer adds, you party politicians use the term parliamentary sovereignty to describe your superior position, and indeed they claim that Britain is superior to other countries because of this doctrine. As a result, the sovereign is not allowed the executive role declared in the coronation oath and must act as advised or be above politics. And he adds, as you know only too well as a minister, you were temporarily in charge of exiting the European Union after some 48 years of subordination. What you seem unaware is the law of England, the Act of Settlement 1701, a clause of which states that it is unlawful for an MP also to be in the pay of the Crown. Big article forthcoming on that on the UK Column website. You party politicians ignore this law. We're beginning to see how, Mike, how we see egregious abuses such as we saw in the chamber a few days ago. Ironically, adds the viewer, the historian of Parliament, Sir Lewis Namia, in a public lecture in 1952, just before the Queen's coronation, explained how modern disciplined or whipped parties removed the Crown prerogative to appoint ministers so that only ministers the party appointed were allowed, such as the pharmaceutical company creatures that we see these days. As you know, he adds, every party produces a manifesto. These manifestos are packages in that a vote for any party means that the voter is forced to totalitarian consent to its entire contents. There is no option to dissent to any part of it, thereby exercising a degree of control over the government by the people. If the individual tries that to say, I'm not voting, I'm going for this part of the bill, or the manifesto, he or she falls foul of the law and punishment ensues. In addition, the candidates in parties, collective responsibility, agree to take the party line in exchange for a career in politics. That, of course, Mike, is what we call taking the whip of the ex-party. The party programme is decided by an anonymous committee. We've seen that with numerous wars and uh, actions over the last few decades, and is probably little examined even by the candidates before the election. That is the meaning of elective dictatorship. 
And this, I think, is the uh, next, the last but one slide of this very important viewer's letter to Sir David Davis. Wikipedia seems to suggest you represent your constituents. No, you don't. You are the Conservative Party representative of your party program manifesto to the people of your constituency. Boris Johnson probably got his majority on one policy, Brexit. The people wanted their self-government back, as Lord Hailsham demonstrated in 1970. Once you have a majority, any other matter arising outside the manifesto, you can do as you like. Johnson has done. You may speak against COVID passports, and rightly so, but you have consented to the dictatorship by being in a party. Final slide from this viewer. The people are trapped because whichever party they vote for, they have consented to the whole manifesto. It is simply a matter of which version of the elective dictatorship you prefer. Behind the scenes, there is an agenda common to all the main parties. Parties, one might say, a common purpose. An anti-nation state new world order of supranational organization. Of course, supranational means directly commanding governments, not international, where there is consent between governments. I trust, Mr. Davis, this is of interest. When do you intend to resign the party whip so that you become a true independent representative of your constituents and their liberty? Well done. Lots more letters like this, please, viewers. We need a, a, quite a bulk of them. Yes, uh, and uh, that hits all the key points there. And, uh, you know, we've, we had some criticism, Alex, uh, I have to say, after the last time we talked about uh, the constitutional role of the monarchy, not the monarch. We're not talking about the royal family and the people that are currently inhabiting this role because they haven't been doing their jobs. Mm. But uh, of the monarchy, we've been criticised uh, for that by some. Uh, but uh, I, just my view that the criticism is based on a lack of understanding of what the constitution of this country actually is and what yes. it represents. Yeah, absolutely. It was fought for blood, sweat and tears. And uh, it's uh, in every part of it from the sovereign downwards is the people uh, requiring officials and the Queen is one of our, well, our chief official to act on their oath. They're not there because, you know, even if you're religious, you, they're not just there because God put them there. We had a civil war uh, to, 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 to make this quite clear. Uh, they're there because we tolerate them be, being there. Even the Queen is elected to do a job under conditions. Indeed. Uh, so uh, now let's uh, come on to this. Uh, now, the issue of social credit. Uh, people talk about this with respect to China quite a lot. Uh, but uh, a social credit pilot scheme has effectively been launched by the government yesterday. So from January 2022, a pilot will see users wear uh, uh, risk worn. Sorry, wrong one. Uh, will wear, <laughs> wear wrist worn devices that can generate personalized health recommendations such as increasing their step count, uh, eating more fruit and vegetables, and decreasing portion size. Users will collect points for these healthy behaviors, which will unlock rewards, which could include gym passes, clothes, food vouchers, or discounts for shops, cinema, or theme park tickets. Okay, so who's uh, actually doing this on behalf of the government? Well, the company that won the contract for this is called Head Up at Labs. It's time to take control of your health. Um, and so this was uh, following a competitive tender process. HeadUp was chosen to deliver the new scheme. Three million pounds also coming from the Department of Health and Social Care to provide incentives. Uh, and evidence suggests that financial incentives can improve rates of physical activity and inspire healthier eating. So Head HeadUp will work with a range of organizations to provide rewards such as vouchers, merchandise, discounts and gift cards. So there you go. Uh, well, of course, we already have uh, social credit in a sense in this country that is and in in the west in the western world that is your your credit score 
And here's a finalized website talking about behavioral scorecard with machine learning components with respect to your credit score. So we're already seeing this. This, of course, is all going to come together into one brilliant system. And I use the word brilliant, dripping with sarcasm, of course, uh, because, of course, we're not going to get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. So and this is an economist talking about computers. No, this is an economist talking about the Green New Deal. And so he's basically saying we've got to change our behaviors in such a fundamental way uh, right across the economy. Uh -huh. And the only way to drive that is through, right. through a kind of social credit so system. So we've established that behavioral change is the must, it's the imperative, and everything else such as using AI is, is concomitant to that or a spin-off of that. Well, using AI in order to, uh, as a, in order to um, create this, the, uh, the behavioral change. So it identifies uh, whether you're behaving properly or not. So AI is being used on social media platforms, it's being used uh, with health apps, it's being used with the NHS health app and so on. Um, but this is all about a whole of a whole economy transition, requires fundamental behavior change. But look, if we're seeing these pilot schemes for social credit, where is it leading? We, we've mentioned this many times in recent months, uh, but it is heading towards digital central bank money. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, when we have digital central bank money, uh, they, there is total control from the state, as it were, about how that money gets spent, where it gets spent, what it gets spent on. Uh, and is, so, I mean, just what you've got on the screen there, right? There's, there's, there's types of money that are only available to financial institutions. Financial institutions exist to handle our money. Money is a means of exchange. Well, no, because... So that, the, completely, the key, I was going to use a rude word, but uh, part of anatomy about face, isn't it? Completely back to front. No, this is, this is very key because what you've highlighted on that graphic is that there are two types of money. There's wholesale money mm -hmm. uh, and there's retail money. And retail money at the moment is in the form of bank deposits for, that we hold with our retail banks. Uh, and it's in the form of cash. Of course, cash is being removed from the equation. It's being replaced with the central bank digital currency. And on the retail end, as far as you and I are concerned, Alex, we'll have access, according to the Bank for International Settlements design on this at least, to two types of central bank money. One is account-based money that you use with a debit card, as you, as you currently do. Uh, and another is token-based uh, on the blockchain. It's, uh, it's really making sure that the central banks have uh, a foot in both camps right. in terms of cryptocurrencies as well. But the key point here, Alex, is that this uh, permits or this enables um, a, a form of social credit that the West certainly hasn't seen before. So this pilot scheme is talking about behavioral change in terms of your lifestyle and providing rewards in return for that in the form of tokens. Um, that you can spend on certain things like theme parks and so on. S simple example of this then. Um, in the Netherlands, they've forced all the public transport to go onto uh, chip cards, right? These uh, uh, passive RFID cards. Uh, the, the one that you buy just that just has a number, uh, numerical string identifying it is known as the anonymous public transport chip card or OV chip card. And you are uh, graciously allowed to use that. But you're told that if you want to travel for business or get some uh, bucks back, for example, for being a regular customer, mm. then you need to put it in your name. And then you get the nice personalized emails saying you, you've nearly saved enough train miles or whatever, or you can transfer your, your entitlement to colleagues. So that, is that a simple analogy to what's now being spun out? It, it is an example example of it. We're in the early stages of this, but but this uh, project, this pilot scheme from the government is leading in the direction of a social credit system, which uh, eventually the Chinese will be uh, uh, jealous of. But anyway, we'll keep you posted on that. Now let's head over to uh, Vladimir Putin, and he's getting himself in a bit of trouble. Uh, he's been speaking at the Valdai uh, Dialogue 
uh, as he does every year. Um, and uh, well, he's been talking about children and, and gender and so on. Uh, so it's terrible, uh, he said yesterday, when children in the West are taught the idea that a boy can become a girl. Uh, he said it's simply a monstrous moment when children are pushed to believe from early on that a boy can easily become a girl and vice versa. Uh, they're pushed to believe they have a choice imposed while parents are swept aside and a child is forced to make a decision that can break their life. Uh, this is close to a crime against humanity dressed up in the name and under the flag of progress. Now, I was looking at some of the uh, uh, comments uh, to some of the mainstream coverage of this, uh, Daily Mail and other newspapers. Uh, and by far and away, there was a lot of agreement with uh, Putin. I don't like Putin was the comment, but the, he's absolutely right in this case. Um, so, uh, and uh, one of the other things that he said as well was, you know, that it was, it was uh, uh, this was being done at an age where children weren't in a position of making, uh, making a choice. So they weren't qualified to make a choice. Uh, but as we've seen with, uh, with vaccines and so on, uh, the, the right to make that choice, uh, no matter what your parents might think, is uh, one that's being made, uh, encouraged ever younger. So uh, I don't know what you think about his comments, but uh, it seems to have had quite a bit of public support in the comments that I saw. It would do, wouldn't it? And uh, it's only Eastern European politicians in Europe that seem to make this point regularly, that children need protecting from their own mistaken decisions. Whereas in the West, that has been uh, weaponized, turned into a driver to change society, to the extent that we have NGOs, some active in Russia, although they're being kicked out these days, that openly say we need to get the younger teenage girls or the tweens activated for a cause, because then they'll nag everyone else into joining the cause before they themselves understand the socio-economics or politics of it. Uh, I wonder, Mike, whether you've seen anywhere, uh, probably not, that the old Soviet-era news agency TASS, T-A-S-S, covered Putin's mammoth Valdai comments and including the comment, it seems that the world food crisis could become extreme. I don't think that's been featured anywhere that's, uh, in, in the West. You have to read Russian to see that that's been uh, said at Valdai. Uh, no, uh, and we didn't report that it was said in Val Valdai, but we did. We have reported that in the last week or so, but I haven't seen it being mentioned on the mainstream press necessarily. No, no. But anyway, let's move on to defence issues. And uh, well, here's HMS Diamond. Uh, and oh dear, uh, it's bad news for HMS Diamond. Uh, was the water too warm is the question? Well, HMS Diamond, of course, uh, destroyer, uh, famous uh, as all Royal Navy destroyers are for not operating terribly well in warm water. At least the Type 45, down. Brian would be quick to add. If yes, you, yeah. okay. So HMS Diamond has now been forced to not uh, to, to end its participation in the 50th anniversary of the five-par defense agreements in Singapore. Uh, it developed a fault on Monday. It's now gone into Singapore Harbor to try to get repaired. Uh, the problem... It's only a few weeks since it was stuck in port in Italy for several weeks because of uh, engine problems. Uh, and of course, this is the common issue with these. But in this case, they're saying that the issue is not thought to be engine related. Uh, and so a spokesperson for the uh, Royal Navy uh, told uh, various news agencies that owing to technical issues, HMS Diamond was unable to participate in the final day of exercise for Sama Gold. Uh, the ship is in the Indian Ocean as part of the carrier strike group deployment with HMS Diamond commemorating the 50th anniversary of the five-par defense agreements by conducting multinational training exercises. Well, this is the training exercise. This is USNI News. And there's Diamond leaving uh, Singapore uh, Harbor a couple of days ago. Uh, unfortunately, it had to be towed back. Uh, and uh, But exercise Bersama Gold, this is an international war game uh, uh, 
Alex, uh, in the South China Sea, between the coasts of Malaysia and Singapore. And to... while it was on, actually, that I think it was the commander of the US Army for the Pacific was asked where his uh, regions of concern were, and he said, they are north of Singapore, west of Singapore, and south of Singapore. Yes. Quite, quite, a, quite transparent there. We must have Singapore. Indeed. Uh, so that's 2,600 personnel, 10 ships, one submarine, six maritime helicopters, three maritime patrol aircraft, 25 fighter aircraft, and two support aircraft. But Diamond was the only Royal Naval ship there. And unfortunately, that uh, failed. A so my question is... called Charlie has suggested that the Royal Navy should build back wetter. Uh, well, indeed. So my question is, since we're about to talk about AUKUS, uh, the, qu uh, the question is, does Australia really want any UK-built uh, <laughs> material? But, but anyway, uh, let's, let's move on to this, because, because this issue in the South China Sea is important. Uh, CNBC here, Alex, saying UK plans to beef up military deployments in Asia. Is HMS Diamond an example of the type of beefing up we're going to do? Uh, it appears to be or, or sogging out. But look at the bottom bullet point there. This is the British High Commissioner because within the Commonwealth, you don't have ambassadors. You exchange high commissioners because we don't regard each other as truly foreign. So Kara Owen is the BHC to Singapore. So quite a senior FCDO diplomat now. And uh, she's quoted here in spite by CNBC as saying that the United Kingdom wants to have a more persistent presence in Southeast Asia than any other European country does. Oops, with Type 45 destroyers. Yes. Um, no, well, this is quite something because in the last decade, oh, admittedly, I was a former Soviet bod rather than uh, East Asia. But uh, our joke in, in, in the former Soviet's desks was that Britain was better than any other European country in not sending junior ministers to visit the countries in the region, simply to lecture them from, from afar at, uh, at Western-based global gatherings. And, and now all of a sudden, we want to be there more than the French, the Germans, the Italians and the Spaniards. Yes. Interesting flip. But here's a close-up from the CNBC article. Um, here we have, uh, it's, it's rather laughable when, uh, when foreign outlets uh, get the conventions wrong and call Sir Mike Wigston, Sir Wigston, which makes one think of a sort of a, a bewigged speaker or judge of the, you know, but uh, he's, one's supposed to say Sir Mike. But anyway, Air, Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigston says there would be a more regular drumbeat of deployments. Can they actually get through the straits is the question, the Straits of Malacca. And he says that would be manifested both in what you see from the Royal Navy, uh, as a diamond, HMS Diamond being an example, and the Royal Air Force. Oh, does the RAF actually have any aim for airframes to go out there? No. Not on the decks, anyway. No, not on the decks. So, not uh, yet. Possibly we have a new squadron lurking somewhere in Malaysia. I don't know. So there is Kara Owen. Um, perish the thought that she got promoted to head of FCO diversity because she's a woman. But uh, anyway, that's what she was doing a decade ago. She started off as Jack Straw's bag carrier, uh, although I didn't cross uh, paths with her. She was there at the same time as me in the FCO system. But if you go to find out her um, personal details on the FCDO website, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, as it's now called, you see that there are four speeches of hers that are regarded as being such purple passages that we must read them. Uh, one is about gender and climate finance. One is about the safe, secure, and of course, sustainable use of outer space, no doubt a British resource. Um, the third is that UK is committed to climate action. And the fourth is collaboration community and the road to, as you were discussing with Pat, COP26. And a little bit of that tells us that COVID is our new normal. And that while there's been a change in mood, there has been a quiet technological revolution in renewable power. Possibly that's the kind of power that HMS Diamond needs to get <laughs> into the Pacific Ocean. 
Some solar panels on the top or something? Yeah, well, of course, you can't guarantee sunshine even out there. So, so the, the question and is... And he's boasting here, of course, Mike, that we went three months without using coal for the first time since the Victorian age. Yes, well, that's been a, a narrative of the government for a while. So, so she is just pushing forward uh, whatever she's told to push forward. So what qualifies her to talk about uh, uh, British activities in the South China Sea? Well, she was director for the Americas before she got her latest overseas posting. So uh, in that capacity, she will have been overseeing quite senior policy agendas. So she will be... You know, one of the one of the key nodes there for Britain coordinating its uh, its actions with at least the Canadians and the Americans, uh, and and probably quite a few other countries as well. Yes. So in the meantime, of course, uh, as you've just been reporting, we are apparently going to be much more active in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea. And here's uh, General Sinek Carter, still chief of the Defence Staff, for another few days, uh, and he was uh, speaking. Um, at uh, the Center for a New American Security, uh, sorry, the Center for a New American Security, he was talking about AUKUS. He was absolutely saying that uh, you know the policy is all about the tilt to the Indo-Pacific uh, with these relatively ad hoc groups. So he's talking about uh, uh, you know new uh, sort of bilateral, trilateral agreements like AUKUS with these. Uh, relatively ad hoc groups, you're able to focus on your mutual interests in order to make progress. This is very much like what Britain did after leaving the EU and uh, not join, well, we did join PESCO, but after leaving the EU, we still found that we could do these ad hoc arrangements with yes. two or three countries at the time. And now geography is no barrier. We can do it with Asians too. But of course, ad hoc arrangements become more formalized arrangements, as we mentioned uh, on Monday's program, I think, when, when David was talking about the fact that uh, UK personnel are now operating under uh, German command and control, a battalion of, it seems. So uh, he went on to say, uh, our rivals are trying to achieve their objectives uh, short of bringing on a hot war. This is fascinating to me because uh, they always accuse the other side of doing what uh, what they are doing. So, you know, is, is uh, China and Russia really pushing to achieve their objectives short of being in a threatening style, short of bringing on a hot war? Well, I think they are reacting to the rhetoric from the British government, the US government, NATO and the EU. That's what they're, they're not. They're not aggressively uh, pushing forward with agendas. They're reacting. Well, if you, if you poke bears with sticks, of course, as the old idiom goes, when you talk about Russia baiting, then you're, you're kind of hoping that they lose their cool and lash out because then you can say, aha, you broke the international rules of 1945. You started a war first. Yes. Uh, but yeah, we can see what's going on there. And he went on to say the NATO alliance is evolving. It needs to be modernized it, to be able to deal with the threats Russia is providing. He went. He was also talking about China a little bit as well. And of course, uh, there has been some uh, furore amongst uh, Western military recently over the fact that China has tested hypersonic weapons. Very naughty of them. Very naughty of them. And uh, But this is seen as a major threat, of course, which brings us on to AUKUS itself. Uh, and uh, it's not about submarines, it's about software. Yeah, so uh, we know that some viewers say it's boring when we talk about defence, but you really need to be cottoning on to this. Just as Pat was saying in the first half of this news, uh, security is a blanket for all kinds of social agendas and to keep people in, in, in well-paid, taxpayer-funded work. So uh, the likewise, the military issue is a way of keeping uh, a whole think tankery segment of the economy going and uh, lots of spin-off industries that would otherwise be doing productive engineering and logistics. So Defence One is one of the top titles in this domain. And it says here in the subheader that AUKUS is not actually about the strength, speed and resilience of software, at least in the submarine sector of the AUKUS agreement. 
And uh, what we read here is that the AUKUS partnership, there's the key word again, Mike, security partnership, not defense partnership or military, that's old hat, security yeah. partnership, is much more than submarines or about much more than submarines. It is, here's a key phrase, a down payment on an even more momentous commitment by the United States and its allies to develop advanced technologies, so we're back to AI again, and scale up capabilities such as AI and other critical areas in which the United States and allies now face strategic competitors such as China. I'm reading, and perhaps I'll present in my next news segment uh, more about this, that the British and American militaries in particular are using more joint training for AI in the military sphere. Defense News, cl closely aligned with the Pentagon, says that the US is wholly equipped to resupply forces in a great power conflict. So there is the hot war that uh, Sir Mike Carter is hoping not to see. Uh, the, the think piece here, it is in the opinion section, is foreseeing it. And after seeing, uh, going through an article here, uh, an opinion piece by Seth Cropsey and Harry Halem, in which they say the US Navy has no way to resupply itself in the manner of World War II if it's overstretched around the world. The final paragraph says that the only reasonable remedy for this is for the US government to fund a new merchant marine, more merchant vessels. So currently there's a retainer paid to 60 merchant ships, basically to book their availability to go and supply fuel and uh, you know uh, fresh sailors to war zones. Um, another angle to what AUKUS is about, Reuters is carrying this, US needs more mines to boost rare earths supply chain. And of course that supply chain, if you're bringing uh, stuff to allies and to your forces around the world, will also include choke points such as the Straits of Malacca and the Straits of Hormuz and the, um, the Eilat Corridor and the Red Sea and so on. Um, so the um, Pentagon's Office of Industrial Policy uh, put forward a spokeswoman, Danielle Miller, on this, and she's talking about domestic mines in the, in the contiguous lower 48 states, basically. She says, we, we know we cannot resolve our shared exposure to supply chain risk without a close partnership with industry. So it's half a step away from commandeering American mines here, as well as American ships, as we saw on the last slide. Uh, but uh, if, if, if this is about supply chains for rare earths, then of course this leads us back into the Green New Deal again. So, oh, yes. so what, the, what we're really talking about is a, a new strategy, a new grand strategy to try to control access to the materials that are needed to pursue this Green New Deal policy. And therefore, if you were to say that the Green New Deal policy is based on hot, uh, hot air, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, and that, that it really there's no justification for it, then all this other policy, all this war drum beating that's going on at the moment, that all falls apart as well. It does rather. And also that there's not going to be much that's in-house with the American and certainly not the British military. A lot of it will be, will be done through requisitioning mm. or paying retainers as we now see. I thought this was a word used in the entertainment industry, but now it's, it's used for uh, merchant vessels to promise that they'll, that they'll deliver Uncle Sam's fuel when he needs to. Uh, moving over to a sub-brand of Guido Fawkes, of course, uh, a vaguely conservative party supporting and irreverent um, uh, outlet in British politics. Gallery Guido is their sub-brand that uh, sends people to, or at least to, dispatches them online to, to cover what's being said in both Houses of Parliament in Westminster. Here they cover the, I would say, quite venerable figure of Lord Indigit Singh, um, who in the House of Lords, okay, he prefaced it with a comment about we need to, to spend more on benefits. So people might think he's, a, he's an old lefty, although he's actually independent, a crossbencher, as they say in the upper house. But uh, he asked the Defence Minister, Annabel Goldie, uh, whether Britain could still behave in the 19th century manner of 
having a God-given right to rule the waves. Now sans navy, of course, Mike, but as we've just seen, that's no obstacle to the modern British way of thinking. Um, so he asked this um, in, in a segment, which you can find on Hansard on the 14th of October. Immediately, Lady Goldie uh, stood up to, uh, to beat him down with the full support of this sort of Yabu cheering of, of Gallery Guido. His anti-patriotic remarks, as they're called, Mike, came from uh, Lord Singh of Wimbledon. Baroness Goldie was having none of it, said that and said that this government has got a fundamental, aha, democratic responsibility to keep this nation secure and safe. So the defense of the realm is sending ships all over the world. It's amazing what can be justified in the name of security and safety. Isn't it just? You know, this, uh, if you're told you're not defending the realm because you can't defend the channel, which admirals have now been saying, you can rebut it by saying, aha, but we have some ships in Singapore when they're working. And this is Lord Indigit Singh. Until a couple of years ago, he was well known on Radio Force Thought for the Day as a very um, humble and generous-minded spokesman for the Sikh religion when, he, when that religion got its turn to do Thought for the Day. And he left the BBC with references to the Thought Police because he wasn't allowed to talk about the origins of the Sikh faith. Mm. So uh, no, he's, he's hardly an extremist. It's remarkable how this can be twisted. Um, right. Look, uh, Alex, we're, we're massively running over time uh, here. So look, I just want to uh, mention uh, this this particular article here from Euronews uh, because this has been building quite nicely over the last uh, and it has had some uh, brief mainstream media coverage recently but coming back to Europe and the border between Poland and Belarus uh, and uh, there are, there is an encampment of refugees on that border yes. at the moment which Belarus won't allow to stay in Belarus but Poland won't allow into Poland either. Quite a large one, and as usual, we are told that they are all uh, tear-junking, uh, helpless Syrian Muslim ladies, right? So uh, let them in the poor dears, a bit like when they cross the channel and we're told that they're all women and children. Uh, quite a lot of them are Mujahideen, from what we can work out, and they seem to have been actively recruited by Lukashenko. I know that uh, we do have some Putin and Lukashenko uh, fans in the audience who will be upset to hear me say this, that they do some bad things, particularly Lukashenko. But Lukashenko is using this as a baton against the Poles. There's been a long, long history of bad blood between those two nations, particularly since Lukashenko's tenure. So the Poles are now saying that the Belarusians, uh, as a result of this standoff, who's going to take the, uh, the, the, the refugees or whatever they are, uh, fired over the Polish border. And if we look back at that slide, uh, if you tap it once more, Euro News, of course, which is not an official EU outlet, but it's, it's what the bien pensants in, in Brussels often like to read. Um, but I'll, I'll rephrase this headline for you. Uh, the Polish Hicks are probably Nazis, is what that headline actually reads, but it's dressed up in nice language, right? So if you're concerned about this, then here's a gratuitous picture of, of a weeping Syrian lady. And uh, who could resist, who could uh, withstand uh, the suggestion of letting these people in. The polls must be neo-Nazis. Lovely reporting there by Euronews. Yes. Okay. Well, look, we, we better leave it there for now. We are going to do um, a short extra uh, in a few minutes. Um, so if you're on the main UK column live stream, then uh, please join us for that. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll have to leave it for there. Uh, we'll be back at 1pm as usual on Monday. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Alex, thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, we hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday. Bye-bye.